All right. You kids, you can go ahead and be dismissed to Children's Church. Children's Church can head downstairs. And I'm going to invite everyone else to go with me to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 2. Thanks, Dylan. <laughs> Romans 2. Romans chapter 2. And we're going to continue our study in Romans this morning. first 11 verses of Romans 2. We'll have a word of prayer, ask God to help us, and we'll look into this together. This is God's word. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness, God's kindness, is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impotent heart, You are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first, and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first, and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that we have the promise that your spirit is with and in and using the eternal, infallible, and inerrant words of God. Lord, that what we have just read is not something of man's generation, the opinions of man, but it is the very word of God. And so our goal this morning is to glorify you. Lord, we want to treasure you and your holiness and what you are. So Lord, I pray that you would give repentance and life to the self-righteous moralist in this room. Lord, I pray that the gospel would be clear and that you would edify your church and that this would be a blessing to each one in this room. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to talk about the equality of justice this morning, how God's justice is described and applied, and he gives us several principles of God's judgment here in chapter 2. But before we do that, I want to tell you a little story. So um, I haven't always been as old as I am right now. 
Um, <laughs> but Jamie has. Um, no, when we first got married, uh, we thought this was kind of cool. We thought we were big kids, and, and so I was 23, she was 21, and uh, we got this little apartment. We didn't think it was little. It was like about 300 square feet. We did not think it was little. We thought we were like super cool. This was like bigger than any dorm room or camp cabin, and, and, um, and so we thought that was pretty neat. And, and, and the, when we realized it was a small apartment, it was our church had this. Do you, you guys remember when churches would do progressive dinners where you go to one person's house for this? One? Well, they wanted people to sign up. And we're like, well, we'll sign up. So we signed up, and I think we were the dessert. And everybody was trying to get in there, and it was like, and they were all looking around like, what are we supposed to do? And we're like, oh, this is a small apartment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, um, but one of the things there, this is kind of like, like so, when, so like when we first got married, um, it hadn't been too long since Al Gore had invented the internet. That's a joke, by the way. Um, um, so you actually, remember when you had to go like to the library to get internet? You know what I mean? Like, so we'd go to the library, we'd go to the college library, and we, that was, and, and Wi-Fi, like hotspots were kind of becoming like a cool thing. That was like a new thing. Like, people would advertise that, whatever. It wasn't just everywhere. Um, ubiquity is a good name for it now. Uh, everywhere. Um, so, um, so we move into this apartment, and we think we're so cool. We're like urbanite, married, have an apartment. And there's this Wi-Fi that is like free, right? So we get on it, and we start using it. So we like, we don't have to pay for internet. This is so cool. We have our laptop. I had a, uh, a big old Dell laptop that was like three inches thick at the time. You remember those? And so we used the internet. And then after a while, the internet went away, and it had some other name. And there was ones that were passcoded that were other people's. And we were like, oh, they, I guess the apartment complex took away the free internet, right? Well, so people catty-corner from us. There's another young couple. Uh, so this apartment complex had a lot of re- retirees, folks that were kind of getting ready to go to homes and things like that, and then a lot of newlyweds. So we affectionately called that apartment complex the newlyweds and nearly deads. And... Uh, um, <laughs> It was terrible. But there was this other young couple that lived like down the hall, catty quarter to us, and we became friends with them. And so we would go like play board games in their apartment and stuff like that. And so one night we're hanging out with them in the in the apartment and uh and and they said, You know what? We've been paying for cable and cable internet and we found out people were stealing our internet. And Jamie and I are like, oh, who could that be, right? And, and, and they're like, what kind of people steal people's internet? And then it kind of dawned on us a little bit later, like, wait, they just had it set up open, and we were one of the ones using it. And then they changed the name and put a password. That was kind of a new thing back then, right? Those early 2000s. And um, so then we go to them, we're like, hey, we're one of those. So at first we're like, those people, oh. And then we're like, we're those people, <laughs> you know? And then we go to them, and we actually subleased. We, like, gave them a little something every month and used their Wi-Fi, and it was kind of as close enough, so it saved them, helped them, helped us, good deal. Anyway, the illustration of where I was going with that is sometimes we will be in a position where we'll hear about wickedness and evil, and this is what this text is doing, and we'll think, those people, right? And then... We're like, wait, I'm one of those people. And that's kind of what's going on as we go from Romans chapter 1 to Romans chapter 
2. That, so, so that, that he's saying, he's just spent Romans 1 talking about the depravity and wickedness and depraved mind and how that expresses that in humanity, especially pagan, Gentile, non-Jewish humanity that turns their back on God, suppresses the truth. And then he moves to the moralist. So where we so Paul in Romans has declared with confidence that I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And he's proud of this. He's confident in the gospel. It has the power to save. Nothing else can save. It, it secures a position. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed by faith, for faith, for the just shall live by faith. And this was that Luther's Tower moment in how it's influenced in chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. This is the nerve center of Romans. And then, so he talks about righteousness. And righteousness is one of the dominant, not the only, in my opinion, but one of the dominant themes of, of, of Romans is for salvation. Salvation is another one of those themes. Salvation to everyone who believes. But righteousness definitely sets up a dominant theme of Romans. So he talks about this power of righteousness to save. The righteousness revealed from faith to faith. And then what he's been doing in chapter 1 and chapter 2, and then the beginning of chapter 3, is talk about how none of us are righteous. And then he's going to talk about how faith in Christ will declare righteous. And then in verses, chapter 6 to 8, how Christians are slaves and we serve this righteousness. And then we're called to defend God's righteousness and then we're called to display God's righteousness working out in the world and in the church uh, in chapters 12 to 16. So the gospel, you could even say that the gospel is God's righteous offer to make unrighteous people eternally righteous. And those of you that remember saying righteous to everything, I'm not talking in flippant terms. But God's righteous offer to make unrighteous people e- eternally righteous. So how can a just God, a right God, justify a sinner and yet remain righteous in the process? How can, in another way, some people have said, how can God make sinners righteous righteously? Because if someone steals from you or abuses one of your children or grandchildren, defiles something that you own, runs into your car and totals your vehicle, and you go before whatever magistrate or whatever and they say, you know what, I forgive them, they're fine. You're like, that's not a good judge, right? Now, if you're the one that did that, you want that type of judge, right? How can God be a good judge? God's not a good judge. He says, hey, I forgive you. All, all's good. Nobody's perfect. What, you know, oh, okay, you killed people. You did this. You committed this atrocity. All good. How can God be righteous? How can God righteously make sinners righteous? And that's what Romans explains to us. It is the righteousness of God that Paul said there in Romans. The source is from God. So how is righteousness Excess? How do you get right? The currency of heaven is righteousness. You need it. You don't have it. I need it. I don't have it. It is by faith. Who is it offered to? Romans 1.16. Everyone who believes. Anyone who is willing to believe that God, what God said in the gospel, can have this righteousness. I just want to park there. Because there's someone in the room that's feeling that when I say that. Anyone who is willing to believe the gospel can have the righteousness of God applied to your account.
This is key, that the gospel is offered to everyone. There is a universal offer of the gospel. Because some, as Romans will point out, don't want the gospel to go to everyone. They want it to only go to their tribe, their people, people that are like them. So why is righteousness needed? Because as we saw in the, from verse 18 of chapter 1 to where we are now in chapter 2, that we are inexcusably unrighteousness, that we're without excuse in our unrighteousness. We are, we, we, and we know the truth and we are without excuse, but we suppress the truth. And we, in our unrighteousness, we do that. So the verses that we saw earlier in previous weeks, that by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, then the rest of the chapter showed the depth and the breadth of the human sinfulness, the total depravity of man, that it affects everything. So we are without excuse. We have a need of the gospel because we are condemned justly by a righteous God. We are without excuse. So Paul turns and talks about unrighteousness. We shouldn't be surprised by that. And this truth is plain. It is clearly seen by all. We talked about how in creation, in chapter 1, He's going to say how those with the law, it's clearly seen to them and that they are without excuse. So both chapters kind of end with this idea that they are without excuse. So we could categorize, so the last time we saw the reasons for the God's wrath against sin in verses 19 to 32 of chapter 1. And we called that worship disorders. That the connector of therefore and for, that those statements that there were three exchanges, that they exchanged this for this, and then God gave them up to, or God gave them over. We saw three times in verse 24, 26, and 28. And therefore they are without excuse. They didn't honor God. They had idolatry. This was the really core of all of our sin, was this idolatrous heart. And then the rest of the chapter restated the outgrowth of that. We saw how that showed up in this depraved mind, this, de- this deserted heart, in a darkened heart in verse 23, in distortion of worship that they exchanged for idols, things like humans and things like creatures, um, things that look like God, and we see this in the Greek, Greek mythology, and then they went to the, the, their distorted mind in their unrighteousness made them defiled, have defiled morals, God gave them over to this. And that this was this, how, how the relationship we have vertically with God, when that is broken down, our relationship with others, other humans horizontally, is broken down. And so they turn to moral rebellion. In verse 24, it was impurity, lust of their heart, dishonoring, degraded, sinful desires, or literally over-desire of lusts. And this was immorality and idolatry, and they're related. We pointed that out. And pointed that this is not just homosexual activity, but any sexual activity outside of the bonds of marriage, what verse 24 is referring to. It's sinful. Um, and then verse 25, they, because they exchanged, who's blessed forever, worshiped the uh, this idea, and God gives them over to the sexual revolution. And then verse 26 and 27, he gave them over to dishonorable or disgraceful passions. And we looked at that, and of course you're seeing a lot of that this month in our culture, um, of taking pride in, in that. And then 
lest we judge others and things. The third section of the working of pagan depravity was in verses 28 to 32, this debased mind, and he returned to this idea of not acknowledging God, but giving them over, and he gave this list of things like not being thankful and being gossips and being disobedient to parents that are all expressions of this. God gave them over to what is said there of things what ought not to be done. And the list all manner shows this is not confined to certain areas or geographies or demographics, but to the whole human condition. And all of this showed us the depth of depravity and why God can say the wages of sin is death. But as we finish up chapter 1 and you look through that, you might be tempted to think, well, but what about the moral people? What about the good people that don't do those things? I mean, I'm not a homosexual. I'm not committing immorality. I'm not gossiping. I'm being obedient to my parents. I'm thankful. So what about me? What about the religious person? I mean, surely that's for them. I mean, because there's a lot of people, even in Paul's day, there were secular people that were moral that you could put up and they look just like, and they have good, you know people that are non-religious, don't go to church, and they have just as good or better morals than some of the professing Christians that you know. They're moral people. They're upright people. They're honest. They're probably more honest than some Christians you know. There are, and, and so what about them? What about the person who's moral? So chapter 1 showed us this godless system and its evil debauchery, but it showed that the wrath of God was there. So we might think, well, what about the moral people? We aren't murderers. We're not that outwardly. And I'm guessing the fact that you're sitting in this room means there's some people like that here. Chapter 2 answers this. That it told us in chapter 1 that the sinful humanity had a darkened heart. Chapter 2 tells us that the moralist, and there's, there's actually some debate of um, chapter 2 verses 1 through 16 of whether that's referring to the Jews only or to moral people in general. Definitely when we get to ch- verse 17 towards the end of the chapter, it's referring to Jews. So some commentators say the whole chapter is referring to the Jews. Um, I think either way, it's kind of a similar application that the dominant moral religion of Paul's day was Judaism. And I think in our day, the dominant moral religion in American society at least would be what I would call like nominal little c Christianity. You know, oh, I go to church. Oh, I was confirmed. Oh, I was baptized. Yeah, that's my church up the street. Uh, What's the pastor's name? I don't know. He's a new guy. He's been there 12 years. Like, um... You know, like, okay, you know, um, 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 yeah, there's that, there's, and there's probably a lot of that in us, and that's what chapter 2 is discussing. The moralist has, so chapter 2 is really saying that the moralist has, just like in chapter 1, they have a darkened, depraved heart. They're just wearing a cloak of righteousness around it. Um, how do we know it's connected we could have the whole sermon in one word at the beginning, the first word of chapter 2, therefore. Or because. Connecting it to what happened before. This sinful humanity, this darkened, depraved heart, therefore, you have no excuse, old man. 
everyone who judges. He's referring to these, these moral people. You're connected to them. And so Tim Keller says it this way, that chapter 2, verse 1, comes as a bucket of cold water to a religious person. The religious person's like, oh, yeah. They're, and, you know, we might be tempted. You might be tempted to be like, yeah, look at them. Oh, they're doing that. Oh, that's so bad. Man, have you seen? It's just terrible. Did you see what those, those youths are doing out at the beach in Ocean City this week? You know? Oh, that's just terrible. And, and chapter 2 comes like a bucket of cold water right in your face like, you like that too! Who's being addressed? The religious moralist. Um, so, so overall, he's trying to show that the Jews are not exempt from judgment. And so if a pagan's without excuse, the moralist isn't with, isn't with, doesn't have an excuse either. And you'll find yourself in the same hell and judgment as a moral person as the pagan living it up in the worst, heinous sin that you would think of. Who, this, this answers for us, who is under God's wrath? The Gentile, the pagan, suppressing the truth? Yes. But also the self-righteous religious person for not obeying the truth and relying on it themselves. So, if we were to take Jesus' parable of the prodigal son, the prodigal goes off, wastes his inheritance on riotous living, that's chapter 1 of, Peg, of Romans. But then there's the older brother. That's chapter 2 of Romans. You see that? So if you see the, the, the prodigal in chapter 1, the older brother in chapter 2. The older brother needs the gospel too. Religious people need the gospel too. Religious people need the gospel too. So one is condemned for practicing sins, but also for judging others who's practicing those sins. Verse 12. So you ever notice this, parents, that you get most upset with your kids for doing something that's just like you? You ever notice that? Um, so this, this gives us principles of judgment that show us what makes the pagan without excuse and this passage has given us those principles of God's judgment that shows that the pagan is without excuse and also the moralist is without excuse. So I got eight of them. They're on the screen. Don't worry. They're going to go fast. Verse 2 tells us this. It says that we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. So God's justice judgment is right. It is valid. It is not based upon subjective standards, but what is just. There's a huge movement in our day about putting adjectives to justice and wanting Lady, lady Justice to take off the mask and put grids on people of when you can apply justice. But God's justice is right. It is objective. It is right. And it goes to the heart. We aren't, we might say, well, we're not idolatrous or we're different. We're not condemned. But this is a false sense of security. Jesus went to this, and we see this in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, when he'd say, you've heard that it's said, meaning the rabbis kind of taught you this way based on moralism, but I say unto you this. So he went after adultery. You said, thou shalt not commit adultery. And then Jesus says, but I say unto you, whoever looks on a woman to lust after their heart has already committed adultery in his heart. So it's not just a, well, I haven't done that. So, so what, what we said is the guy with shifty eyes or a, a thumb that's scrolling things that he shouldn't be looking at on the internet, that this is the same heart of an adulterer. 
He also goes on, Jesus would say, that, you, that, that, that how they treated like, almost like a divorce for this. I'm not going to commit adultery. I'm just going to divorce my wife and then go marry the woman I want to commit adultery with. And Jesus was doing that. You're marrying for all these different reasons. Isn't it ironic? And there's a reason why the world sees the hypocrisy of the church. Because some of the same guys getting up and claiming, I believe in traditional marriage, and we've got to stand for traditional marriage. Well, where were you 40 and 50 years ago when the church was going along with changing divorce laws for no-fault divorce? I'm not saying the Bible doesn't give exceptions. I'm not saying there's any... I'm trying to explain away text. I'm just saying that the no-fault divorce stuff was pushed by the same people that want to stand up and say they believe in traditional marriage 40 years later. Okay, and, and so the moralist and the pagan are under the same judgment. Jesus would say, you've heard, thou shalt not commit, adult, uh, commit murder. But you say, I say unto you, if you have hatred in your heart, you're guilty. But, I mean, how many people say, I'm not one of those murderers. Oh, I can't, you know, what those people did, or that people in that, that part of the century, or that, that, that place in history, or uh, this person there. But literally, you would, you, do not, you, you would run somebody over to get a better parking spot at ShopRite than them and not think twice. You've heard it said, Jesus says, to honor your father and your mother, but, you, but you're, and you're doing this if I say rock hour, I'm giving it to God. How many of us explain away so many other things? This is what Jesus is doing. God's judgment is valid. Verse 3 God's judgment is inescapable. Verse 3, it says this, Do you suppose? Suppose means think, presuppose, think. Do you consider or think, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? No. The answer is no. He's getting this diatribe with some imaginary Jew here. Um, No, no, you're not. God's judgment is inescapable. There is no exceptions. This is for the person that thinks, like, well, those rules don't apply to me. Don't you know who I am? I'm special. Do you know what my last name is? You know people like this. There's always something like this. This doesn't apply to me. This is legalism. Legalism, by definition, is thinking that you are gaining favor with God by deeds. Gaining salvation or sanctification by doing deeds. Legalism is not wearing a tie. Legalism is thinking that God is pleased with me more because I'm wearing a tie than if I'm not wearing a tie. Or I get saved by doing something, doing something or get more sanctification by doing something. Okay, so we mix up that whole legalism word. But there's a religion or traditions. Um, but thinking we're not tested as individuals but as a group or by a family or by a covenant, as the Jews would. I've done the rituals. I'm part of that covenant. And do you think, even though you're committing these things, that you're going to escape this? You know, the, the, the Jews actually had some rabbinical teachings that thought that Abraham was going to sit outside the gates of hell and watch for wicked Jews to make sure, and, and make sure they didn't get to have to go in because they were Jews, even though they lived wickedly. We think that same way. Well, I just don't believe God would, that so-and-so, I mean, they weren't as bad as that person, so... He says, do you suppose, O man, you do practice such things that you yourself will escape the judgment of God? Well, well, I I got baptized when I was a baby. I mean, my parents had me baptized. Therefore, I'm part of this. I I went through confirmation, so I'm okay. 
This is a false security of religion. The Jews had this too. They thought, well, I'm in this covenant family. I'm part of the chosen people of God. I've done the rituals. I'm part of the covenant. And we could take the uh, modern religion does the same thing. Hey, I'm covered. My mom and dad had this done to me when I was a baby. I'm okay and have false security in something else. If the pagan is without excuse, the moralist is without excuse also. And you'll find yourself in the same hellfire and judgment. And you're even more without excuse as a religious person because you have knowledge. So what he's going to get to in the later part of the chapter. You guys have the law. You've read this. You know. So as long as you think, are you supposed, do you suppose, oh man, as long as you think that you are an exemption to God's, that you are the exception to God's judgment, you will not repent and turn to Jesus. And the most loving thing I can do is say to you, my friend, you are not the exception to God's right judgment. It's not escapable. There's no exceptions. The rule of law is God's original, that he is right. It pertains to everyone. Verse 4, it says this, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Don't, God's judgment is kindly delayed. Don't presume on his kindness. The purpose of God's kindness is, and forbearance and his goodness was to lead us to repentance. You might think, all those things, being raised in a Christian family, having parents that took you to church, being part of that covenant family, those were all things of God's goodness to you to put you in the, put you in the way. I mean, how many of you believed the gospel the first time you heard it? No? Okay, maybe a couple, right? Like, but you think of how many of it was like years of our, parent, our parents, and we all had the drug problem, right? Our parents drug us to church and Sunday school as kids, right? And, and like, you didn't want to go. You get there, and it was years and years and years, and then somewhere about like 10 or 11 or whatever, you're like, oh, I believe this, right? And you think, well, how good and kind of it was to God for however many years that was for you, to put you in the place where you heard the gospel, and heard the gospel, and heard the gospel, and saw the gospel, and heard the gospel, and saw people living out the gospel before you believed. Don't presume on the goodness and mercy and kindness. The goodness of God in those things to you is the purpose of God's kindness and goodness is to lead you to repentance. That's what it says. The purpose of it is to lead you to repentance. Verse 5. God's judgment is coming. It says this, but because of your hard and impotent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when, the, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. It will be revealed. It is coming. It is sure. It is coming. It will be revealed. He's delaying in kindness and goodness for us to repent, but it will be revealed. God's judgment is coming. Verse 6. He will render to each one according to his works. God's judgment is based upon works. Let me say it this way and see if you catch me. I believe in works-based salvation. You better go talk to the deacons. No, we believe in works based upon the works of Christ for us. What Jesus did for us, we only get it by faith in Christ. 
But he judges on the basis of works. And he judges Christ on the basis of his works. And we get to be united with Christ. And his works become our works. And what he did on the cross for us is applied to us. Your eternal state is based upon works. Your works or Christ's works. Everyone's judge. It's your works. Each one according to... You see, I want to get to that in a few moments. I'll go back to that word. Next, God's judgment is eternal. It says, He will render to each one according to his works, those who by patience and well-doing and honor life, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth and obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury, verse 7. God's judgment is eternal. The reality of eternal judgment should cause people to ask. Like the fact that this is, you will live somewhere forever. Everyone in this room is going to live somewhere forever. And the reality of an eternal judgment should cause you to ask, where will I spend eternity? If I'm going to live somewhere forever, where will that be? And that should cause you to run to Christ for refuge. That he offers eternal life in heaven with him to all who would believe. Verses 6 to 10 are really kind of cool. They kind of give this like cross, that kind of that like you know, a neat thing. But he says that the, the principle I want to point out first here is that God's judgment is personal. Verse, you'll notice a couple of different things. In verse 6 it said, each one. Verse 9, it says, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then verse 10, it says, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That it is an individual. It's individually not, but you don't get a free pass because you're in a certain family or a certain person was your father or your mother or you're in a certain denomination or religion. You won't even get a free pass for saying you were a member of Linwood Community Church. It is each person. It's a personal relationship with God. You can't claim a covenant identity that, well, I was baptized this. No, it's an individual. Your works, you'll be judged. You can't say, well, I'm part of this family. You know, my granddaddy was of this. My grandmama was of that. That's what you always hear. You go out witnessing to people, particularly in the South. Everybody's grandpa was a pastor, you know. Say, my, grand- my granddaddy was a preacher. Nice. What about you? What about your soul? Um, so, and then the final one, verse 11 for God shows no partiality. God's judgment is impartial. These are eight principles of God's judgment of what it looks like. Notice this is God's judgment. God's judgment's impartial. He's not, well, you have this background and that motivation and didn't have this advantage. It is equal. There is equality in God's judgment. It's not skewed. And those that know the Lord are even under more judgment because they know the truth. So Romans has spoken to us about God's wrath being revealed against unrighteousness. So who is under God's righteousness for being, God's wrath for being unrighteous? 
the Gentiles are for suppressing the truth and living that debauched lifestyle and going into that those sexual and homosexual revolutions and the debased mind and all those things that ought not to be done there in chapter 1. But if the pagan is without excuse because of their darkened heart, the moral religious person is equally without excuse because they are of the same heart, cloaked in righteousness, cloaked in light, and they will find themselves in the same hell and judgment. So who is under God's wrath? The pagans for suppressing the truth, but also the self-righteous religious people for disobeying the truth and relying on themselves. The prodigal needed the gospel in chapter 1, and the older brother needed the gospel. In cha- we see this in Romans 2. Religious people need the gospel, and you need the gospel also. I'll quote Keller again. He said that religious people run from the gospel as much as unreligious people do. Do you know that that's why the scandal of the true gospel is religious people don't like the gospel because it takes away all pride. Religious people like to be able to say, I did this, I didn't do that, I obeyed this rule, I did this, I did that, I, I'm, I'm good, I, I, I obey all the rules, right? Um, they, they have that attitude. Religious people like that. The gospel is scandalous to that because the gospel says that's all junk. You're in the same level as the, the, the person in the biggest ditch in the pit that's strung out in whatever sin you could think of that you think of as worse than yours. You're the same. Religious people run from the gospel just as much as unreligious people do. And the heart of the gospel is that God's righteousness is revealed. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the righteousness of God to all who believe. There is righteousness revealed, but that it has to be received by faith. So the verdict of our unrighteousness, whether we're religious or pagan, makes the gospel urgent. In light of the verdict, when we get a glimpse of our depraved nature, we see that the wages of sin is death. This is why we need righteousness, not of our own, not of religion, but of Christ. This is why Christ came to die. The essence and attributes of God God are clearly perceived. The gospel message is, is 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 the answer. And what's the solution? The scriptural solution to the dilemma is not for you to keep trying to obey the rules or be more religious, but accept through mercy the free gift of Christ. For by grace are you saved. And not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Not of works. Not of religious works. And why not? So no one can boast. You can't brag, I did this, I did that, I got this, I got that done. Baptized, gave, membership, taught, donated. No, not of works that no one can boast. Anyone who goes to heaven and says, well, why why should God let you into heaven? Well, why why shouldn't you be condemned to hell? If you say, I, that's the end. It's because Jesus did, because the because what Jesus did died for me. Jesus died that He did this for me. I have Jesus righteous. I believe Him. 
I'm depending on him, not me. This is the gospel. Justification brings us peace with God. And we'll get to that when we see in the future chapters. And so, brothers and sisters, I hope that the gospel, and I think this is also fitting for this month and also fitting for just life in general, that the gospel should humble us. There should be no Christian having an arrogant look down their nose at any other sinner ever. And, and, and you might not see yourself in Romans 1, but then you're in Romans 2. And they both end with, you're without excuse. And you're unrighteous. And that all of our sin is what Jesus died for. And when we get to Corinthians, when he lists all these different types of folks, and such were some of you, that's what the church is. And this should motivate us to that. This is what Jesus, how Jesus died. This is gospel-centered faith. Um, it humbles us. It points us to center on Christ. And let's think upon this as we prepare for the table. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for this portion of your word. And Lord, I ask that you would apply it uh, to us as, we, um, as the need is there. I pray for the one who needs to believe.